Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. It's my podcast about working. And if you've been tuning in this season, you know that I've been exploring the working lives of artists of various mediums. It's been a real pleasure to do so and an honor to share it with each and every one of you. So thanks for tuning in. You know, this season has changed me a bit. It's kind of made me reconsider not only my relationship to creativity, but also to ego and language and vulnerability. Yeah, I think that's what it is. It's the vulnerability of it all. This season's been so fulfilling so far. And that last episode with Brian Trahan, the music producer, the first double episode in this podcast's history, it really changed the way I think about how I approach playing and recording music. And I know, I know, I told you all I was going to append a song I've recorded to each episode this season. Look, I got to apologize. I should have mentioned that I don't intend to write songs for the episodes with musicians. Yo, I'll let their art speak for itself. But, but I did record some piano and singing at the end of this one. And this whole process, the empathic engagement, the music recording and production. It's all made possible by my friends over at patreon.com slash for a living. And I want to seize this opportunity to thank a new patron of the podcast, Mr. Hugh Williamson of beautiful Berlin, Germany. I had the pleasure of teaching two of Hugh's kids a few years apart they are both awesome. Hugh is awesome. I'm pretty sure that Hugh is going to be a guest on this podcast. He's a writer. He's a thinker. He spins a few plates, but a lot of the work he's been doing lately is exploring the working lives of worker priests. And I got to be honest, I didn't know about worker priests, but these are priests who are ordained, but they spend their lives embedded in working class communities, working at working class jobs, you know, factories and the back end of restaurants and shipyards and garbage collection services and whatnot. And they speak the language of empathy and healing and probably redemption and all of that. But Hugh's father evidently spent his career as a worker priest and he was writing his biography. And perhaps as part of that process, he's been working as a journalist, exploring the working lives of worker priests. So I'm definitely going to get Hugh Williamson on the podcast when the time is right. But for now, I just want to say thank you, Hugh Williamson, for raising awesome kids, for your focus on working lives for your generosity of spirit, and for your generosity in supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash for a living. And if you're listening to this, just know that you are cordially invited to pop over there and support this podcast. You don't have to. You can. You are invited. But if the time isn't right for you to donate to For a Living, I get it. We're good. 
No problem. Take the free ride. I take free rides. I support some projects for which I have a bona fide affinity, but I also take some free rides. No judgment. We're on the same team. But I'll tell you this, it would mean the world to me if you could do this one-two punch here, okay? One, hit the subscribe or follow button right now. And two, tell a friend about the podcast. Maybe share a link to your favorite episode. You might end up sharing a link to this episode because this episode, if I may be so blunt, kind of kicks ass. And in the case that sounds arrogant, it kicks ass because I'm talking to a kick-ass woman. Sonia Nauman is a photographer and an instructor of photography, and I'm a total fanboy of her and her work. We talk about a number of her projects. We talk about the $1,000 dress project. We talk about the pocket change series. I link to all this stuff in the show notes. We talk about her gentle curiosity and the importance of slowing down and seeing people. And if you listen closely, as I know you will, you will see that this person here Sonia Nauman is such a kind and creative and compassionate person. Uniquely so, I would argue. So please join me in conversation with photographer Sonia Nauman. Sonia Nauman, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? I would say that I use the camera to connect with others, to connect with myself, and ultimately to just explain our experiences to ourselves. And, you know, the photograph itself sort of ends up becoming this two-dimensional object that embodies sort of a four-dimensional exchange or conversation. It's, it's just using the camera as a tool to make meaning. To make meaning. And to give a voice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I'm curious what drew you to photography, perhaps as opposed to other mediums. Would you please share with me the Genesis story of this love affair with the lens? I was in high school. And I was, you know, taking art classes. I always loved to be in the art room. It was sort of saving grace. But largely they were drawing classes and painting classes. And I remember one day walking through the halls and seeing one of my girlfriends wearing a camera. She had a Pentax K1000 strapped around her chest. And it literally just stopped me. I can remember the Levi's I was wearing and the sounds of my boots in the hallway that day. And it just like froze me. I was like, where did you get that? <laughs> and, you know, she told me she was taking a, a photography class and I didn't even know that photography classes were an option. And I just took my first photo class. It was a dark room, black and white, black class. And that was it. That was really just, I just fell in love with the whole entire process from 15 on. I love to paint. I love to draw. But there's just something about the kinds of connections that you can forge with other human beings and as a result then with yourself, with the camera in ways that I can't execute with 
color and canvas. You know, it seems to me that one of the ironies, perhaps, of photography is that the practice requires you to put something substantial between yourself and a subject or between yourself and an object. And in the act of putting something between you and them or you and it, it perhaps connects you to that person or that object more so than if there was nothing between you. I know you a bit, and I know that you connect to people in extraordinary ways. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between connecting and photographing? You know, in terms of working with another person or connecting with another person, I think most photographers would agree, regardless of what sort of genre they practice in, the camera gives you access to people in a very, very different, in a very sort of specific way. And, you know, not all people are comfortable with the camera or the presence of the camera, but they can be comfortable with you. And so if you can meet a person before you introduce the camera to them, then something really special and unique happens. And I think that it's not about the technological implication of the shutter or, you know, the lack of or the inclusion of the depth of field. It's a kinesthetic type of energy. You know, if you think about spending time with someone that you don't know and your whole purpose is just to really kind of get into the, like, the, the grit of this person, like, you know, sometimes I like to imagine us as trees and that we have all these rings inside of us. And I really like just trying to get to the innermost ring of a human to understand them uh, and understand how they function, understand their behavior, understand their choices. And having conversation with people sort of while you're photographing or having discussions before you photograph it's metaphysical. I really, it's like you're, you're interacting in the fourth dimension. <laughs> and I realize sometimes I sort of laugh at myself as I say that, but I really believe it. And it's a, it's a kinetic kind of energy. And the photo just sort of becomes this document of this exchange and your relationship to the exchange changes over time as you reflect on the document it's there. It's just something otherworldly. And it's like, it's interdimensional. Like you travel within yourself interdimensionally when you photograph. And I would say that the person who chooses to participate in your photograph does the same thing. It's just, we're not necessarily conscious of it. Hmm. Sonia, I totally dig the idea that the enterprise has a certain kinetic energy to it. And I believe you when you say that the camera can give us access to a person or an object in a very specific way. I guess I just wonder how the camera can give you access to that innermost ring of a subject or an object. It's not the camera that gives me access. It's, it's my curiosity. And I take it very very seriously. I feel like if, if someone is going to allow themselves to be vulnerable with you, you have a grave responsibility to that person to not take advantage of them and to not exploit them. 
and I'm very careful to make sure that I don't engage in that way. And I'm sure that there's a few times that I have and didn't realize it until later, perhaps. But I think also there's something that happens when there's just some moments of quietness where I'm standing in front of someone holding a machine (laughs) and, you know, they're either standing for me or sitting for me or, you know, whatever we've together agreed upon. There is just this moment of silence and just this moment of in between where you both just have to sit with yourselves, but you're not just sitting with yourself. You're in this sort of shared energetic space You know, sometimes people love being looked at and sometimes people are terrified of being looked at. And it's really a matter of not looking at them, but looking with them and just trying to get to that place. Because when you put a lens into any situation, there's a performance. It's like photographic theory 101. When a lens comes into the room, that person's behavior is inherently shifted because, you know, it's that third eye, so to speak. It's the mechanical eye. And depending on how comfortable that person is with themselves, they have a very unique reaction to that. And in some ways you have to shoot a lot or pretend that you're shooting a lot or just have that lens in front of your face for a while, almost to try to make that lens invisible. It's it's not possible. I'm not saying that it happens, but you sort of try to pretend that that's not what you're doing if that makes sense it does and i'd actually like to hear you talk more about it and in particular i'd like to hear you talk about the collaborative nature of your work not being a photographer myself it didn't really dawn on me until i heard you talk about it a moment ago that this is an experience that you're creating together with someone And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the collaborative nature of your practice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I feel really, really unsettled if I feel like I've energetically taken something from someone. I'm very, very almost to a pathological degree, like hyper aware of my energetic footprint on other people. It can be one of my best friends that can be like, you know, the cashier at the grocery store. I'm very, very careful of my energetic imprint in other people's spheres. So the idea that I might take something or exploit a person's vulnerability is absolutely terrifying to me. Mm, (laughs) I mean, it it keeps me awake. It, It like you know, lights my anxiety on fire. So for me, it's really important to have that collaborative nature because I don't want to come in and just, you know, splash my ideas and project myself onto the person that I'm photographing. I mean, inevitably, it's impossible for me to not project myself onto a photographic participant. It's impossible. I mean, that's just not plausible. It's basic psychology. But at the same time, in terms of how a person wants to present themselves. You know, for me, the collaboration, it's the most important part of the alchemy because they have agency, right? They have agency in two ways. One of which, you know, depending upon the nature of the project, the agency is they're going to look right back at the viewer. 
So as a viewer, you know, when you see a lot of contemporary portrait work, you're going to see the photographic gaze, you know, and that's just the term for like the subject's going to stare right back at you. And so you don't have all of the power as the viewer. And I think in terms of the making of the photograph, it's really important to me that that person is participating with me in the sense that they're being photographed in a space that is indicative of them or emblematic of them in some way, shape or form. Sometimes people want to be photographed in their homes. Sometimes they have sort of an abstract idea of a place that they would like to put themselves in. And that's not to say that they run the entire production of the photograph. It's more so they give their input and then I give mine. And then together we make the document. It's really important to me that they feel comfortable and that they're giving their input into the image because ultimately it's important to me that they have input on how they want to present themselves and how they would like to be seen. Otherwise, I've stolen something from them. Otherwise, that image is solely about me and not about the two of us. Because the reality is there's no way that that image also is not about me. You can argue, and certainly it's theoretically pondered upon, that every photograph that a photographer makes is basically a self-portrait. And, you know, that in itself becomes interesting. Hmm. So in order to construct this creative collaboration that you're describing, you have to make a lot of choices. And one of the choices you have to make is who you choose as a subject. Can you talk a bit about how you choose subjects and how you choose projects? Maybe start with how you choose subjects first. Like, how do you know mm. who to photograph? Yeah, you know, it's, I, this is a, such a fun question because it shifts. It depends on where you're at within yourself and within your life and on any one particular day or how you're rolling. <laughs> so if I'm in the streets, which, you know, one of my favorite things in the world is, you know, like for the dress project, for example, I love having a backpack with that dress, my model release forms and my camera and my cowgirl hat. And I love just walking the streets and not knowing who I'm going to come across. And, you know, I might not even find a subject that day. Like every year in Los Angeles, after the pride parade, I always hit the streets with the dress uh, because I want to get um, that particular perspective. And in that case, I'll find an interesting sort of backdrop and then I'll just wait and I'll watch people cross the street. And there's so many wonderful people, you know, they shut down several blocks within West Hollywood and it's just a major, beautiful celebration. And I'll just wait until I sense, you know, the people walking like, Ooh, I can feel that person. I don't really know how to explain it other than it's just an intuitive kind of desire to speak to that person. And it's also kind of an intuitive sense that they'd be willing to speak to you. And not everyone says yes, but it took me a while to realize the worst thing that can happen is someone says no. Mm. And when they say yes, it's really just one of my favorite things because you're in the middle of the world. There's so many things going on all around you. And yet you're sort of in this tiny little 
you know, <laughs> invisible portal where you're chatting with one another and you're describing to them what it is that they're doing. And they sort of go with the spirit of the moment and just roll with it with you, which is, um, it's just, I can't really uh, describe it other than it's just this wonderful feeling of being alive and being alive with this person and sort of sharing space, you know, it's like, it's, it's <laughs> special for lack of a better word. It's just special. And so it really is just a matter, as you say, of intuition over your decades of being a photographer and over the decades of being an empath, just someone who really, I think, thrives on their engagement with others. You kind of can go with your intuition in a way to choose subjects. Is that what I'm hearing? Absolutely. I love people. I love strangers. I love just hearing their stories. I love understanding people. <laughs> I just, I love engaging with strangers. And I bet they love engaging with you. I think we should probably take a half step back because you brought up one of your projects that I find endlessly interesting. I don't do a lot of research on my guests for the Studs Pod, but I did hit your website and I did hit your Insta and I learned about this $1,000 dress project. Maybe you would be so kind as to tell me a bit about this project. Like what's the origin story? What does it come to mean to you? And then maybe we can use that project as a springboard to talk about your work a little bit. So tell me everything you're willing to tell me about the $1,000 dress project. So the idea for that project kicked in, I would say, probably the fourth year of being married is when I realized I was married. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember being in the laundry room and doing laundry you know, it was this old laundry room that had like an old olive refrigerator and, you know, surrounded by like underwear and socks. And, you know, the, the dress was hanging in this blue bag, you know, on the, the clothesline. And I remember doing laundry and looking at the dress in the bag and just thinking, this is so strange that this dress that I wore for 12 hours that cost a thousand dollars is just going to live in a bag forever. This is so bizarre. Like, why am I keeping this? And also, holy shit, how did I get married? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, just in the sense of by the age of 10 for me, I mean, I think I had a very specific and negative view of marriage. So origin story, I guess, like the real thing is, uh, you know, my parents married one another twice. So they divorced and they got remarried because they got pregnant with me. Uh -huh. <laughs> it was not a, like, they really should have just let it go. You know, it was really not a healthy relationship at all. And so as a child, you see, this is what marriage is. And I just, by the age of 10, I would say no children uh -huh. and me no too. husband, <laughs> you know, because it just felt like as a woman, I just saw my mother, you know, sort of trapped and stuck. And, you know, I just didn't really understand commitment because I didn't have a healthy example of it. In fact, I had the example that would make anyone just run in the other direction. 
you know, then of course I met this incredible human being and was sort of like, well, I guess you can always get out of this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like 60% of people do. Yeah. So why not? Why not? Throw caution to the wind. Let's do this. And so regarding, you know, the dress itself, I was a boots and Levi's and a white V-neck t-shirt seven days a week. Kind you of really were and committed the to the V-neck t-shirt, weren't you? I remember this. <laughs> you were, you had brown cowboy <laughs> boots, Levi's, and yeah. it, you, you were committed to the V-neck. Yeah. yeah, it really was. It was a thing. Okay. I, it was like a costume, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I really just went through this phase of just completely rejecting femininity. And the idea then of like, A, wearing a white dress and B, like jewelry and oh, and then being the center of attention. It was, ugh, it was not a fun feeling for me. Yeah. So I, I found a hundred dollar dress online and it was linen and it was simple. And I remember being really excited about my frugality <laughs> and telling my mom on the phone, like I found this dress and it was a hundred dollars and it's just nice and simple slip dress. And, um, this is an interesting window into my mother, which is, <laughs> she's, she said to me, if you insist on looking like raggedy fucking Anne, then I am not coming to your uh, wedding. And she hung the phone up no. and, and she wouldn't answer my calls for two weeks. And in, in these two weeks, I was like, I don't get it. Like this means we don't have to spend as much money. Like I thought I was saving you money and you know, this is what feels good to me. And, you know, I think I realized, Oh, she wants this like bonding process of going to look for dresses and she wants her daughter to try on dresses and she wants to sort of you know have that single mom pride of there's my baby you know yeah when i realized that it was sort of like oh okay this is really important to you this is really not important to me but if this is that important to you then let's do this sure so you know we went shopping with my sisters and you know bought a dress off the rack and uh and I remember just saying, are you sure this is a thousand dollars, which I learned later is actually quite inexpensive <laughs> compared to what a lot of people spend. Yeah. But to me, I was like, that's like three plane tickets. Like I can go places, you know, are you sure you want to spend money on this? <laughs> right, right. And so we did, you know, like the symbolism of the dress, it changed meaning in a lot of ways. Like for a while, it was sort of this symbol for me personally of this one moment in my life where both of my parents were present, you know, when it was time to plan me walking down the aisle, you know, my father quite literally disappeared when I was nine. We had no idea where he was for several years. And, you know, he just, he just was not a big part of my life. Uh, we had a phone relationship and I think I've seen him a dozen times since. And it just didn't seem fair to walk down the aisle with him because he didn't really raise me. You know, my mom is the one who stuck around. So at the same time, I didn't want to reject him and solely walk down with her. So I told them, I said, look, you, you both owe me 30 minutes and either you both walk me down the aisle or I walk myself down the aisle. You know, I just didn't want to choose between the two of them. Yeah. And so it really kind of became this beautiful symbol for me of as a 26 year old young woman the first time in my life where both my parents were in the room with me and supporting me and it was that really meant a lot to me 
Um, so yeah. It's coming to mean a lot to me too. I've spent some time over the last days staring at your wedding dress in all sorts of places. So now you have this $1,000 dress and the $1,000 dress has a story. And now it seems to me that you're using this $1,000 dress to tell a lot more stories. This project of yours, the $1,000 dress project is, I hope you don't mind my saying, it's kind of brilliant. Can you tell me about the $1,000 dress project? Well, darling, thank you for that wonderful comment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's no, really, it's super cool. uh, I'm really, I'm not just saying it. I'm totally. I'm gonna if if there's a book coming out, I'm gonna buy the book. I went down the rabbit hole of the thousand dollar dress project. I would love to hear you talk about it. I'm serious. You know, I love the project. I love it so much. And, you know, people think I'm crazy. And some people, you know, colleagues will like roll their eyes and say, Sonia, are you still working on that? It's like, yes. And I'm going to work on it my entire life. Just watch. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just watch me. So with the dress, it really is just sort of this vehicle for dialogue. And what what I like to do with the dress is... I like other people to wear the dress or pose with the dress, you know, whatever is comfortable for them. And then I like for them to share their stories about the way that they conceive of marriage or just long-term commitment. And it doesn't have to be someone who wants to get married or someone who is married or someone who's been divorced. Like it's everyone. You can never want to get married. I want to know that story. Because I think a lot of people punish themselves or a lot of people feel like they failed at something if it doesn't work. And I just feel like, you know, we're animals. We are, you know, we're domesticated, you know, but we're animals. And in terms of marriage being a contract, people said, Yes, till death do us part when life expectancy was like 32 years old. Sure, let's hang out for 10 years. You know, I think that it's it's just such an interesting history, the whole concept of the white dress and the whole concept of choosing this one person to love for the rest of time. And if that doesn't work and you're not happy, well then, you know, (laughs) what does your life look like? When I have confusion over certain elements within myself... It's great because I can put the dress in my backpack and jump in the car or hop on a plane and walk some streets and just ask people how they feel about that particular topic. My hope is to get like a realistic portrait of commitment and to see how people all over the world do it and to just have a little piece of their story so that it's actually sort of a holistic portrait of you know, this thing called commitment. And you can choose to commit to yourself. You can choose to commit to your work. It's really not about marriage. You know, it's not about that for me. So you're walking down the street with the backpack. You, using your intuition, approach someone who you think they might be game or they they have some sort of an X factor. Mm-hmm. And you 
cautiously, perhaps a bit self-consciously approach them and you say what? My name is Sonia and I'm working on a project called The Thousand Dollar Dress. And the goal is to photograph a thousand people in their own or chosen environment, either wearing the dress or posing with it. And I collect your thoughts on commitment and marriage. Would you be interested? And what's the most common immediate reaction that you get? <laughs> I just illustrated it. Mm. It's a laugh. Yeah. I get a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And then it's a bit of a, a tilted head. Uh-huh. It's a thing. People tilt their heads to the left when they're really thinking meaningfully about something. Uh-huh. You know, I think then there's a little bit of shyness and flattery about the idea that someone, A, wants to talk to you and B, would like to take your photograph. And then, you know, it just depends upon their disposition. Uh, but also people contact me through the website. That's what I love I'll get people that write me and have very specific ideas of how they want to be photographed. And that to me is great. And if I have to travel to them, you know, I'll say, look, I'll come to you if you can find me three or four more people. Uh (laughs) So that way it's like, it makes my travel worth it. And I have something sort of locked in, so to speak. And so in that case, they are ready to play and they want to play and they're really excited about it. And they're almost sort of like, photographic producers in the sense that they know exactly how and where they want to be photographed. And that for me is a lot of fun. And, uh, and then on the streets, it's just, you're just relying on your own interpersonal sincerity and their willingness to receive it. And also their willingness to sort of reveal some intimate details about themselves. And you'd be surprised at how people really want to be talked to and, and If you give them just curiosity and it's sincere, people will have a lot to say. And it's, it's really beautiful. It's just really beautiful. And it, it's life force energy, so to speak. It's the point and interactions like that, regardless of what the medium is or whatever, just that feeling to me is, is the point. Forgive me that this is a loaded question coming from a total and complete buffoon on all things photography and perhaps most things generally, but I can't help but beg you to at least try to explain how it is that your work as a photographer seeks to capture that inner life force or that essence of a person at that moment. Hmm. You know, I don't know that I ever capture a person's essence. In fact, sometimes when I really sit and, you know, remove myself from my work so that I can study it to see, you know, what I'm doing, where I'm going and what I might need to shift and where I need to grow and what have you. I think one thing in that particular project is it's a very diplomatic and a very sort of cerebral process. And like sometimes I'll, I'll put, you know, a lot of the portraits on the wall and I'll just sit in the room with them. You know, I study the compositions. Sometimes I memorize compositions because it helps you with your compositional acuity. It helps you sort of build that. It's a muscle and you don't want to have to access it. It's just got to be there, you know. 
And I find that's how I can build that muscle is just sitting with those images. But again, back to what you're asking, it's, um, I don't think I get their essence. I really don't. The one commonality within each frame is the dress. And for the most part, I try to get a lack of expression from the person that I'm photographing simply because it allows the viewer to project more onto them. If somebody's giving you an expression, you're told how to read the image versus if they're not giving you an expression, you can spend so much more time wondering about that person. So I don't think I would ever claim to actually get a person's essence. I would like to sort of practice a different type of portraiture to see if that's possible. I just, I don't think it's possible. Hmm. Although I, I, I don't think I've gotten there. How about that? I've, I've seen work where people do, and I, I don't have that gift, you know? Maybe. M maybe, you know, this notion of capturing essence is a little bit slippery. Though you had said that you make an effort to capture their life force. And I think in a way I might know what you mean by that in that you're, you and that person are breathing life into one another and you're trying to capture a moment mm -hmm. and give some sense of who the subject is. And though you might not be able to capture their essence and I don't even know exactly what that would look like or mean, I believe you when you say that you seek to capture in some way or speak to their life force. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and I think, I think that's where it really... It really comes down to just your animal. You know, I notice with myself my defense mechanism through life was to intellectualize everything, right? Like what I love to live in the intellect, love to decipher texts, love to just hypothesize and be curious and just swim <laughs> in the wonder of the intellect. And I realized that by sort of approaching life that way and leading with my head, you know, I was leaving my animal behind. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's really easy to stick around in the intellect and forget about the other components of your person. And um, what is it? We spend 90% of our decisions throughout the day are made with our subconscious self. And most of us aren't even aware of what is in our subconscious self. But I think that what happens in these moments, at least for myself, and then I think subconsciously I'm energetically trying to get them into the same place, which sounds manipulative, but it doesn't feel manipulative. It's more so just like, without saying it, just asking a person to slow down. And without saying it, just telling a person, I see you. And without saying it, really letting the person know that you appreciate them. And it's, it's all in, in my gaze at them. It's all in my interest in who they are. And it's all in just really being open and receptive to them and really just 
taking time to celebrate this other human being. And sometimes that will turn into a full day excursion. And sometimes it's an hour and sometimes it's two hours and you just never know how it's really going to sort of unfold. It's like animals meeting. I don't know. And that's, that's like, I, I use the term animal for basically it's my way of referring to my feeling self or my, my spiritual self, or, you know, the parts of me that aren't egoically conditioned, you know, just the parts that are sort of like my authentic, true self, you know, which for a lot of us, I think is largely a pretty silent part of ourselves. And I think that in that shared space and in that sort of energetic exchange, I mean, how much more of a compliment could you give to a human being than to give them your time and your interest? And how, and what more of a gift could they give to me than to allow me to do that? Because I just, I, I love it. So I think it's, now I forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you're good. And I don't want to talk about it all day, but I do have a loose question around this and it is a genuine curiosity. So I hope you'll be so kind as to humor me here. I dig that there is an animalistic spiritual dimension to your work. You also were clear that there's something very cerebral about it. And of course, photography can be and often is very technical as well. And I guess I kind of wonder how your practice as a photographer balances the technical, the cerebral and the spiritual sides of you. Hmm. So balancing the technological meaning. I mean, there's gear, mm -hmm. there's technology involved, you know, I mean, I don't want to like dive into, you know, Walter Benjamin, which I haven't read, read for yeah. a decade, <laughs> but like, you know, there is like art in the age of mechanical reproduction and the, the mechanistic and technical nature of it. Mm -hmm. While it might not be your favorite part of the process, like there is a technical side to it, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was trained in the dark room. I was one of those people who literally went kicking and screaming out of the dark room. And I was just, I just, Oh, digital was, oh, like death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, what do you mean? I can't be in the dark room and I can't like make my prints. You know, I was trained to make perfect negatives and I was trained to make perfect prints. And there's just a certain kind of magic in that process that just plain does not exist when you're editing and working digitally. However, for myself, just by <laughs> the nature of working in either poorly ventilated labs or labs that were not ventilated at all. Um, by the time I was 26, I had developed pleurisy, which is <laughs> a really antiquated disease where the lining of your lung is infected. And mine was infected and inflamed enough that it actually cracked my ribs. Oh my. And there's no treatment for it other than to be aware of the air you're breathing in <laughs> and you have to wear a wrap around your torso and basically not breathe very deeply, not laugh, no sneezing. You know, it's like a very painful condition that lasted for roughly three months. 
And as a result of that, I developed an allergy to the chemicals. And I can't at this point, even walk by a dark room and not have a chemical flu for a few days. So sadly, I was sort of forced into <laughs> digital. Oh um, and of course, you adapt. And now I've developed my own sort of poetic flow with it. And, uh, you know, I know a lot of people that really like to look under the hood of the mechanics and the technological implications of the camera. And I'm just not one of them. I really am not one of them, you know? You know, it's funny because you'll be like in a pack of photographers and there'll be, it's almost like talking about a car engine, you know, it's sort of like all the different lenses. Yeah, the gearheads, right? Yeah. And I can appreciate that. And I love listening to those conversations because I always learn and it's my job to read about what's happening. Do you love listening to those conversations, really? I mean, I like hearing them with, well, you know what? You're right. I'm full of shit. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, do you? You're I, right. I mean, I, I, maybe I actually want to know. Do you like those gearhead conversations? I mean, I find them very entertaining. I guess I don't love them as in I, I get a lot out of them. I just, I find it entertaining, you know? Okay. It's fun. It's fun to play and sort of push the boundaries of what these things can do and experiment with what that means. Um, I guess for myself, I, when it comes to working with people, that's just the last thing that I rely on. You know, I like to keep it as basic as possible, but then there are other projects where I'll play with technology and, you know, sort of push that in a different vein. Okay. So the technical dimensions of your practice are not the focus. Like when things are humming along, when things are going well, ordinarily you're not particularly conscious of or concerned about the technical dimensions. You're much more focused, if I'm hearing you right, on the, on the spiritual dimensions, sometimes the cerebral dimensions. And I kind of wonder, and this question comes from a very specific place, and it has everything to do with my long lost relationship with you. I haven't seen you in, you know, decades probably. Yeah. But I remember you being, and I know that you still are, an inspired and an inspiring person. And I know that inspiration is for amateurs and the rest of us just, you know, get up and go to work. Like I, I like Chuck close as much as the next person. <laughs> he did say that. He did. But I wonder what the role of inspiration is in your practice. Ah, oh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's important. I will just say that it's important. And I'm a deep feeler. I am, you know, 100% a feeler. And so for me, with that type of sensitivity, it's almost like I personally have to do a lot of work to grow my skin. I have very thin skin. And when you feel like the alien in every room you enter, I think what I just started doing very young in terms of inspiration, I love being inspired by people who know who they are and don't apologize for it. So for me personally, what inspires my own practice is it's not other photographers. 
it's music, it's writers, it's, I'll look at Holly Hunter and I'll watch everything she's done because I just adore the way her person interacts in the world. Like there's a trace of her in every character <laughs> and I just love her, you know, to me being inspired, I don't want to sleepwalk through my life. I have no interest in a traditional life. I have no interest in sort of the white picket fence. I just want to have as many experiences as I possibly can. And I, I think that just opening yourself to looking at other people's processes and finding what's inspiring about it, you can find inspiration in everybody, everyone, whether they're artistically inclined or not. It's an important feeling when you're in that place of, oh, like, I want to have that feeling at least once a day, that sort of gasp yeah, and wonder. It's like, I want to be a kid for the rest of my life. <laughs> I don't want to grow up, you know? Yeah. I hear you, sister. I am right there with you. You know, maybe bringing some of those things together, I want to dial into a question and then circle back around. So... Speaking of not wanting to grow up and this kind of issue of inspiration, you are a professor of art and art history. You deal with a lot of young people who really seek inspiration. And there is something inspirational at the core of the, you know, the youth project, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like how and where and what you've professed <laughs> <laughs> over the years. Like maybe just talk about your, the, the academic side of what you do. I don't want to get too far into it, but yeah. if you could talk a little bit about like where you've been and what you've been doing. And then I have a kind of a question about that. And I want to circle back around to this issue of inspiration. Yeah. So currently I teach at El Camino College, which is in Torrance, California. I love, love teaching at this school because they have what's called the South Bay Promise which ultimately means for students who attend high school in the South Bay area, if they maintain a specific GPA, they get their first two years of community college paid for. And so the kids that I get to work with, you know, when I say kids, like they're not kids. That's, <laughs> I guess the older you get, these kinds of things fall out of your mouth. Yeah. Um, no, you're an old lady. They're kids. Yeah. It's good. <laughs> I would argue I'm an old Italian grandpa trapped in a lady's body, but that's for another conversation. <laughs> I hear you, grandpa. Go ahead. Yeah, but, you know, young people, you know, so I get people anywhere from 19, fresh out of high school to I get folks that are, you know, in their 30s, 40s, and sometimes 50s. I, I love working with my students in that particular school because most of them are working class students and it is the most meaningful position that I've ever had. And I'm just really happy being there. Um, so I started at the University of Iowa, which is where I went. And I also taught at Kirkwood Community College, which is in Cedar Rapids. Then after my mother died, I just couldn't run a room and I just needed a break. So I came out to Los Angeles and started doing film set work 
and honestly didn't even know that I would ever return to education. And when some of my set work dried up, I started teaching at New York Film Academy, which is the Los Angeles campus is in Burbank. And that was a private school. Um, most of my students were international students from Saudi Arabia, they're from India, from Russia, from Nigeria, from China. Like it was really just a beautiful sort of conglomeration of so many different cultures. And I loved, loved working with the students. Um, just sort of grew tired of the politics of the institution, so to speak. And then I picked up a few semesters at UCLA has their visual arts extension program. And then I left that position to go back to the University of Iowa for one year. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a breadth of experiences. You've been teaching art classes for uh, you know, 15, 20 years, maybe. Mm -hmm. You've done it in, as we've established now, a number of different unique and distinct environments. And I kind of wonder how your interactions with your students informs your practice as an artist. Ah, yeah, it, um, it really informs my work. When I'm working with students who are practicing artists, I would say that's really probably the most inspiring because you know, you're just acting like a mentor. There's nothing that I can teach them that they really can't teach themselves. It's just more so you're kind of, you know, just nudging them slowly into themselves. Ultimately, you know, you serve as a sounding board, but I find my role for them is not to impress upon them how to work. My role is to really force them to go inside and sort of listen to their own internal voice. You know, I always say to them, like, listen, you know, we all have 40 to 70,000 thoughts a day. Sit with yourself long enough <laughs> to just take notice of which ones sort of skip on your record and then follow that. Because if you go with that, you're inherently interested in your subject matter. And if you go with sort of what's on trend, well, yes, you can have a dialogue with what's on trend and what's happening in the contemporary photographic landscape, but how is it serving you? It's a reproduction of sorts. It's a bit of a photographic karaoke of sorts. It's just a matter of listening to your own curiosity and following it. I love, love just watching at the end when we can take a look at their prints and what they came up with, just seeing their pride and seeing their growth it fills me immensely. And I love pouring myself into them and into their process. It's energy for me. It fills me. And I need to feel, I'm the type of person who needs to feel like I'm making a difference. Teaching for me, I don't do it because I have to. I really love it. I love it. I could make so much more money doing something else. But I just, I love it. I need it. <laughs> I can't imagine not having that. Yeah, I've had the honor of spending the last two decades plus in a classroom. Wow. I didn't expect to be doing it this long, but I find it to be a near constant source of inspiration. 
it's also a constant source of frustration, but largely in a good way, <laughs> right? Like mm-hmm. I'm thrilled to learn that you and I share a passion for the classroom, as strange as it might be that you and I occupy institutions, as crazy as it is that either of us might be considered to some uh, an authority figure. (laughs) Uh, I think it's great that like we both (laughs) fell in love with it. But I'm curious about something as it pertains to inspiration and teaching. I know you well enough to know that you prize your privacy. And being in the classroom the way I'm sure you engage in the classroom creates for a certain amount of vulnerability. But more so, your work really has some evident autobiographical elements. Mm -hmm. And I guess I wonder if you'd be willing to walk me through how intimacy and exposure and privacy inform your work as a photographer. Ooh, yeah, it's it's loaded. It's a rough one. I know. I'm so sorry. It's no, a lot. no, no, no. It's just yeah. It is. There's, it's a very textured concept for me personally. So intimacy, exposure, and privacy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is um, <laughs> this is where I enter the mouse trap of my own mind, and it's really textured and it's really dark and it's really convoluted and I'm still slowly baby stepping my way into the light (laughs) when it comes to that (laughs) all right I can get up and I can give a lecture I can get up and give a talk in a room of 300 people right because it's a little bit of an entertainer is in there you know yeah and There's something really different about just having someone look at the images that you produce. And ultimately, you have to sit with the reality that they're going to make a lot of judgments about you. And as a person whose egoic training, I guess you could say, was not exactly healthy in the building of self-worth category, (laughs) I'm sort of the person who is like... just sort of intrinsically stripped of whatever ideas of self-worth you might have. And I spend the rest of my waking life, like building it for myself, if that makes sense. Oh, I identify. It makes perfect sense. And it's such an interesting thing too, when you just think of the concept that the way that you see yourself and the way that others see you, it's just, it's never going to match. You know, I'm very, very hard on myself. It's taken thousands of hours and thousands of dollars in therapy to sort of like learn to be kind. And so I get absolutely terrified of people actually seeing me with all the different bodies of work, whether it be, you know, like the Dunst series, that's a series of self-portraits. People assume a lot of things when looking at those. And to me, they're funny and they're sort of, there's humor and it's a little bit dark and it's a little bit sort of macabre but it also really shows a lot and you know the pink project is very clearly about my mother dying from breast cancer you know the dress project is very clearly evident of my own uncomfortability with relationships and I think what I'm learning is that 
it just doesn't matter anymore at this age and stage in my life and just where we're at in terms of like a global culture, it just doesn't matter anymore. So I'm a little bit less inclined to hide these days. That being said, also, I'm the person who probably has $10,000 worth of prints in her closet <laughs> because I'm just terrified of like having it out there. Like it's not ready yet. But the truth is all of those images are done and they are ready. There's just some part of me that's like terrified of, I guess, just being seen, which is hilarious because, <laughs> you know, if you think about what I do with strangers is I see them and I allow them to be seen and I absolutely loathe having my photograph taken. So I think it's important to allow your work to serve yourself. Get what you need out of it. And you know what? If people enjoy it, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of that with me. I know that all of that stuff can be rather fraught. And fraught it must be for you to exhibit your work, right? It's like the ultimate problem for someone who prizes their privacy and has certain concerns about exposure. And it makes sense that you have 10,000 bucks worth of prints in your closet. It doesn't make so much sense that you would choose to <laughs> exhibit your work but there's a reason to do it. And I know it must be hard for you and it might not be easy to talk about it, but if you're willing, I'd like to know like how and why and when you choose to exhibit your photographs. Yeah, ah, I, I have reached, I will say, especially post pandemic, I've reached a, a sort of a breakthrough where I realize you know, you don't have to take this shit so damn seriously, Sonia. <laughs> like, Amen, sister. It really doesn't matter. The work is already made. It's already in the form of an object. Wouldn't you just want to share it with other people and allow them to have the experience of sitting with an object rather than a digital image on a handheld device? You know, why not? Of course. So I'm, I'm ready to exhibit, I guess, at this point. And then the concept of how to, you know, that's where you get into the politics of the industry and the institution. You have to pay to play. You know, you have to pay a lot of money to get your work seen by ultimately people who sort of operate within this sort of esoteric belt. And, you know, I recently attended a talk of a collector of a very important photographic institution who said he does not take cold calls from photographers. He has to have someone that he trusts drop a name for him in order for him to look at work. Ew, yucky. And really when I heard that, it just really rubbed me the wrong way. And it also just really highlighted the reality. And it's just, don't get me wrong, I respect that world. I do. I respect the sort of decisions that go into those processes. I respect the people who really really know the medium and know the work that's been done, know the work that's being done. They do a lot to keep themselves up to date. I think what I don't respect is the elitist sort of nature that comes with it. And um, 
I realized very early on that it was sort of a game to play and that networking was essential. And I'm just not good at networking because it just feels so inauthentic. And then I sort of recently had to remind myself, well, you don't have to network. What if you can just approach people the way that you approach people that you like to photograph, which is just be yourself and ask them. <laughs> the worst thing they can do is say no. But, you know, it is such a fickle, fickle world. And uh, it's a it's a difficult one to nudge your way into. And uh, there are just certain things I'm not willing to do to, in order to get in. So I guess I just really told myself, just head down and run. Just make as much work as you can. Build your archive. And eventually, someday, someone who sees what you're doing, sees the value in what you're doing, will create an opportunity for you. So I'm just preparing for that day. <laughs> and if it doesn't happen, I've had an extremely fucking meaningful life in the process. So I win either way, you know? It seems like it. I really dig your attitude towards that. And I know it's so vexed yeah, and so stressful. The problem of showing your work and being part of the so-called scene, it's just impossible. You know, Sonia, I had meant to ask you this question a moment ago, but I either didn't have the words or the courage, but I have a little bit of both now. So I have to ask. So you told the story of the $1,000 dress project and the autobiographical nature of its origins. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the Dunce series, which you spoke to its autobiographical nature. And you shed me and, you know, the Pink Project. Mm -hmm. Your work is inextricably intertwined with where you're at in your life. Mm-hmm. And I speak from experience when I say that art heals. And I know that you agree that art has healing properties. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk about how photography helps to heal you. Ah, yeah. I mean, tremendously, tremendously. Honestly, I... It's my big love. I mean, I love big. I, I love, I have a lot of love and I have a lot of people that I love. But really, at the end of the day, that is my big love. And it's, um, it's kind of what, it, what I was getting at earlier with the whole idea of, you know, for a very long period of time, I was getting validation through academia. Let me get this scholarship. Let me get this fellowship. How can I compete? How can I sort of prove my worth. Somebody tell me I'm worth it, you know? And I, you know, I certainly didn't realize that while I was in the throes of academia, it took some major, major knock yourself off of your horse life circumstances to really make me look at that. And once I realized I was completely over identified with my intellectual self, I realized how I had completely, uh, or I thought, I had completely abandoned my animal, my body, my feeling self, my sort of spirit self, all of the things that we can't necessarily articulate without sounding sort of woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear you. But um, I'm a person who requires meaning. 
And, you know, it's occurred to me lately that maybe there just really is no meaning. Maybe going through life attempting to either seek out meaning and when you can't find it, you create it. Maybe that's an approach that I should shed. Like maybe that doesn't work. Maybe that leads to disappointment. But when I'm going through something where my personal development hasn't arrived yet, yeah, you really, when I'm working with others, it's definitely wounded healer archetype for sure. Every time I create a beautiful memory with another human being and we share something authentic and real with each other, it's, it's a salve, you know? Yeah. And it's a salve to them and it's a salve to me and it's beautiful. And I guess in some ways, maybe it's just extremely self-absorbed <laughs> that I just create different projects at different stages in my life to help me. But I don't think that's conscious necessarily. It's more so it's a little something that you can't shake. It's a restlessness. And there's just something that you, you have to externalize. It's sort of like externalizing little parts of your personal constitution. You know, does that make sense? Like, do you do that in some, in different ways? In every way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely therapeutic. That's for sure. Like, you know, even just the, the pandemic, you know, that was sort of like, holy shit, I can't interact and photograph people for how long? And so in order to deal with the insanity and the anxiety of the pandemic, it just became like, well, let's hit the streets and take six to eight hour walks and obsessively photograph everything that looks interesting to remind ourselves <laughs> life is beautiful and it's okay. <laughs> and just like stay in your body and, and walk through the world. That's the one freedom that you have right now. And it became an obsession and it's totally and completely got me through and yet that's probably the safest body of work I've ever made. And it's probably the most well-received. I said, fuck it. I'm going to photograph all of this with my cell phone and I'm going to see who actually notices. <laughs> 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 and no one has, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's you like, you heard it here it, first. Ha ha. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, can yeah. I, yeah. can I read your words to you oh my because you're referring to the pocket change series that you've been doing through the pandemic yeah and i think what you wrote about the series which i'll link to in the show notes i identify so if you'll allow me yeah go for it thanks so in referring to the pocket change series that you've been working on in the throes of this here pandemic. You say, this series functions as an accumulation of the lo-fi souvenirs collected throughout the city of Los Angeles while touring the interior and exterior shift in reality materialized by the pandemic. Walking miles and miles while pocket photographing for hours and hours served as a transformative meditation of sorts a much-needed structure and conscientious therapy, a fugue flaneur quietly moving through the streets with an obscure obsession, if you will. I became addicted to the hunt and grew a very specific fascination in curating pairs, things you carry and collect, sentences you write and read, 
depending on the chosen arrangement. Sort of like a mixtape from someone you know, but you've never met. A somewhat sentimentally subjective sensory experience with a sing-song scratch. Yay, Sonia. <laughs> I loved that. I love that when I read it. That is pitch perfect. I love everything about it. And that should be enough. But I can't let you go without offering me two things. All right. Okay. The first is, I would like you to offer me one cultural artifact, historical, contemporary, or otherwise, that somehow informs or embodies your practice as a photographer. Could be anything. Cultural artifact. I would say immediately, just without uh, analyzing, what comes up for me is, is uh, Bob Dylan's last thoughts on Woody Guthrie. Hands down. I remember the first time I heard it at 19, you know, it was our first house in college and I loved it. And I remember hearing that for the first time and just probably not moving for like a day and just listening to it over and over and over again until I had memorized it. I revisit that a lot. And I just that particular set of words is uh, so powerful and so moving. And it just gives you permission to, for me to do a couple of things. A, it gives you permission to not accept sort of reality as it is. And it gives you permission to sort of wander. And I go quiet every time I listen to that. Or if I say it, if I recite it a little bit to myself, it just reminds me to stay in that, that one little corner of your person that only you know about and to move with that part of yourself. You know, it's, I just, I love, I love that group of words. I love it too. Hey, you want to trade verses with me until one of us fucks up? <laughs> when, you're, when, your head, when your head gets twisted or your mind grows numb, you think you're too old, too young, too smart, or too dumb. <laughs> when you're lagging behind and losing your pace in a slow motion crawl of a life's, life's busy, busy race. race. We could do this for a while. <laughs> we could do it for a while. I know it's only my opinion. I may be right or wrong, but you find them both in the Grand Canyon at sundown. <laughs> Ah, it's so good. It All is. right. Thank you for invoking Dylan, a perfect cultural artifact vis-a-vis -vis this conversation. And then if I may be so bold, I'm wondering if you can recommend a guest I should pursue. This could either be someone you know, or more broadly speaking, a profession that you'd like to learn more about. Who would you like to hear on the Studs Pod? Oh, hands down, one of my dearest friends, Laurel Snyder. The two of you will adore one another, first of all. And also, she's just such a great conversationalist, and she's such a fascinating person. Um, she went to the writer's workshop uh, and went through the poetry program. And after she had children, she started writing books for children. So her whole creative process is just fascinating. And she's one of my favorite people that I'm lucky enough to, you know, feel like she's a soul sister. She's just wonderful. I think you would really have a great discussion with her. 
All right, then put me in touch with Soul Sister Laurel Snyder. I will look forward to getting to meet her and diving into her work. Sonia Nauman, I am so grateful that you're willing to spend some time and share some of yourself with me. I think your practice and your work, it's really extraordinary. I was angling to get you on the show. I feel real lucky to have had the opportunity to talk with you, to learn from you. This has been a splendid experience for me, and I'm truly grateful. Ah, oh, thank you so much, Dan. I'm still like, oh, you said so many really sweet and kind things. I don't, I don't know how to respond to those things. <laughs> like, it's just, you don't have to. Uh, yeah, it's, all it's right. just. I really, I really, I'm so honored, and I really, really appreciate it. And it just, ah, oh, it makes me. Ah, I I adore you. So thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do something that totally terrifies me. This is this is good. This is healthy. <laughs> All right, kids. That was me in conversation with the brilliant, the brash, the bold Sonia Nauman. She's amazing. She's amazing. I told y'all I was right. I don't get to say it often. I was right. I also told you I was going to throw a little bit of music at the end of this. Now, I should say, all of the songs that I append to episodes this season will be original songs based on the tone and the content of the conversation that I have with the guest from that episode. Save for one. I had the goal of recording a simple cover song. I didn't know what song I was going to cover, but Sonia made it easy for me. So here we go. Despite being consumed by my own trepidation, I'm going to share with you a Bob Dylan track that I laid down. It seems appropriate, right? Who am I to cover Bob Dylan? Everyone else does it. So I reckoned I would take a go at it too. This track, like all the other ones this season, was produced by My Squeeze and the guest on the previous episode of For a Living, Mr. Brian Trahan. It's just me screaming into a microphone and hitting piano keys real loud. Nothing wrong with that. All right, kids, please take care of yourselves. Be healthy. Be well. Strive to thrive despite the times, or to spite the times. And we will be back in two weeks with the poet and professor of poetry, my pal, Josh Weiner. All right. <laughs> Here we go. the streets of Rome I filled with rubble ancient footprints are everywhere you could almost think 
Peace.